Welcome, everyone. We are here for our third episode of the Faith in Al podcast. Um, this time, we are joined by Father Romanowski of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. Um, Father Romanowski, before we get started, we always ask our guests to lead us in prayer to start our episode. If you would Absolutely. Lead us in, in nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora per nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Sede sapiensiae, ora per nobis. In nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. In Latin, for all of our universal listeners out there. That's right. Um, I want to first off thank you for um, being a part of uh, your order and helping bring the Latin Mass apostolate to the Diocese of Venice, South Florida in general. Um, obviously, it's something that's great need in this time. Going back to the traditions of the church, um, the things that obviously were never lost, or perhaps were set aside for a time, but now are being renewed. Um, Father, if you would talk a bit about how you ultimately joined um, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, and also a bit about the order itself yes. and its mission and charism. Great. Well, first off, I'd like to thank you for this invitation. I'm delighted to be here. And as you know, our Lord sent us to preach unto the ends of the earth. So thanks to your, your podcast here, we, we can do that now with all the, the technology of this day and age. So uh, yes, I'm honored to, for the invitation and to, you know, to speak of what God has done, both in my life and in the life of our community. So uh, in terms of our community, it has a very interesting prehistory. It was founded in 1988 uh, by Pope John Paul II, who erected it as a, as a society of apostolic life, a pontifical rite. Mm -hmm. So it's where as most orders begin on a diocesan level, as a pious association of the faithful, for example, ours was erected immediately from the start, as it was very much um, something close to his heart that these great traditions continue within the church. And of course, he uh, had that being uh, uh, from Poland. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been to Poland, for example, you'll see that in their principal Marian shrine of Czestochowa, they still celebrate Mass ad orientum, towards the cross, everybody facing the same direction, uh, the sense that we're going towards God and offering the sacrifice to Him. Um, and likewise, very influential and providential in our foundation was, of course, Cardinal Ratzinger, who um, is from Bavaria. And that's kind of where the story begins, actually. Mm. Our founders recount how our first house in what is now our seminary there in Bavaria, Germany, uh, in Vigraspad, it was actually, there's a prehistory whereby uh, in the 1930s, a lady, uh, Antoni, she uh, was persecuted by the Nazis. They came to our house one day and said, hey, take down that image of Our Lady and put up an image of the Fuhrer and saluted us, Hail Hitler. And she said, no, I will not take down the image of Our Lady. And I say, Gruß Gott, which means, you know, may God, uh, God save you or may God bless you. And so they persecuted her and almost killed her. And her, her life was miraculously saved. And in honor of that, her family put, uh, made an, uh, a grotto, a Lord's grotto, to Our Lady there in their house. And then Our Lady uh, began to work miracles, smiling at her and giving her messages mm. and asking that, a, that Our Lady of Victories and uh, that she build the Chapel of Grace, so that she build a sanctuary in her honor there where she would pour out many graces upon the many people who would visit there. 
And so this sanctuary, very popular in Bavaria, very well known, began according to these visions in the 1930s, 40s. And then, so they had built this shrine, and then the rector of the shrine, Father Johannes Schmidt, uh, he uh, likewise, in speaking with her, was convinced that a, that a seminary would be there one day. Mm. So the people of the town actually built the seminary. There was no order, there was no plan for <laughs> Just anticipating that it would be. The, they trusted yeah. the visions and yes. what Our Lady said, so they built a seminary. And he spoke about it many times, and he was very devoted to Our Lady, spoke often of the total consecration of St. Louis de Montfort to the Blessed Virgin Mary at the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so, uh, and one year before his death, he still insisted, uh, you laugh at me, but there will be an international order which will come here from Rome, and it will be an important order in service of the church. So he said that in 1987, before he died, and, um, and our rector uh, of the seminary now, who was mm -hmm. our first superior general, uh, Swiss-German Father Joseph Bissig, he, was, uh, he had visited the shrine as a child, mm -hmm. and so he knew about it, and he knew about the prophecies, but never did he think that he would one day be the rector of that seminary, <laughs> of that yeah, order. Of course, yeah. And yeah. so, um, but so it happened. Then one year later, in 1988, our order was founded, directed by the Holy Father, and uh, by pontifical right, and Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, being Bavarian, called up the local bishop and said, hey, I think I know the order that's supposed to inhabit that shrine. <laughs> Please receive them there. And so, and so we began. And uh, humble beginnings in 1988, because, of course, as, as he would later say then, as, as Pope Benedict, uh, in his uh, document Summorum Pontificum, in the letter which accompanied it, that uh, the traditional form of the Roman rite, or the, what they call the extraordinary form, Latin Mass, the Tridentine Mass, however you want to call it, was never abrogated. But as you mentioned, it was treated thus, you know, and it would seem to have been lost amongst many. Or there were groups that were celebrating it, but uh, independent from the diocese, mm -hmm. and it began to take on a connotation of perhaps rebellion or resistance. Uh, so it was a very important moment where the Holy Father extended um, his sincere intention to, no, we have to continue with this tradition. As, as Cardinal Rassinger would later say as Pope, that which was for uh, prior generations was held as sacred, remains sacred and venerable for us. And he had said previously, too, as a Cardinal, that a community which calls into question what she had held as uh, most sacred for so many centuries, as now as something foreboding, uh, calls its own identity into question. So he saw it really as a, as a sort of rupture that this he who was president of the Second Vatican Council as a priest uh, knew very well what the uh, Second Vatican Council said in Sacrosanctum Concilium where it said that Latin will be preserved in the Latin rites. Mm -hmm. The Gregorian chant will have the pride of place. So I often remind people when they come to our Mass, which is celebrated according to the typical edition of 1962, said, this is the Mass of Vatican II. <laughs> yes. And it's a Mass in accordance with what it asked for in terms of conserving Latin and Gregorian chant and uh, all the reasons why the Church had explained that. So, um, so it was a very providential beginning. Um, but again, you know, we were new. We looked different. So we had a hard time uh, getting started at first, but little by little, and just to catch you up to speed then, now 30 years later, we're celebrating 30 years uh, of our foundation this year in 2018. And now we number over 300 priests in 16 or 17 different countries. We have over, we have about 170 seminarians, uh, both in that seminary in Figratsbad, Bavaria, 
and likewise in Nebraska and the United States, and bursting at the seams. We had 40 uh, candidates apply this year. Uh, we could only accept 15 that we deemed uh, to be ready, and it's likewise a question of space. So I think we're the, we just built a seminary, a gigantic seminary, which um, houses 100, but it's pretty much reaching its full capacity. So That's wonderful. In the United States now, we're over 100 priests and uh, 50 different mass apostolates here in the Diocese of Venice, uh, thanks to uh, Bishop Dwayne, ever faithful to what the church asks him, um, and his sincere desire to support this mission. Uh, we've had a, a parish church now in Sarasota, Florida, um, for many years now, and now we've extended as a, as a mission and a full-time apostolate here in further southwest in the Naples, Fort Myers, southwest Florida area. So it's been an incredible blessing. You know, we just, uh, but it's a service to the church. And that's how our now current rector, who was our first superior general, Father Bissig, whom I mentioned, um, how he saw it. You know, it's just we're handing on what we have received. Yeah. And that it's a treasure for everybody. And that's what uh, Pope Benedict mentioned in his letter on uh, Samorum Pontificum of how this will enrich the life of the church. This will help avoid a uh, hermeneutic of rupture and reestablish a hermeneutic of continuity. So we need to be back, we need to be rooted. You know, a tree can only grow as high as its roots are deep. And so to always keep that, um, that unity, the, um, that fidelity to your tradition, uh, and, and it's really an attitude of humility too, no? I mean, if we look back at our grandparents, great-grandparents, and realize, you know, they had more faith than, than we do. <laughs> We're kind of falling apart in this yeah. day and age. So, you know, what was part of the secret? Um, and you recall what uh, the Second Vatican Council said, that the liturgy, the sacred liturgy, is the source and summit of the Christian life. And Pope Pius XI, in his encyclical on Christ the King, he said he wanted to establish the Feast of Christ the King because he said it's the liturgical feasts which teach the faith more efficaciously to the people than even dogmatic pronouncements. No, if I ask my people, how many of you have read an, en an encyclical? Eh, maybe a couple people, part of one. Mm -hmm. But how many remember the Corpus Christi procession? Oh, yeah, I remember. And I remember one anecdote, if I may share, uh, sure. of a bishop, uh, Bishop Curtis, I believe, who was in uh, Omaha sure. or Oklahoma. I can't remember now. But anyways, he said that when he was uh, a child, he, well, he'd asked one of our priests, he said, well, how your people... Uh, exhibit a great reverence to the Blessed Sacrament. Yeah. And I want to see that throughout my diocese. And that's, you know, that's the church's intention, that this venerable rite teach us that, that secret of sanctity that um, formed so many saints throughout the ages that we don't lose what they, what they knew and were formed in. And so uh, our priest began to say, well, I don't think it's so much of like a campaign of sermons so much. It's, it's how we treat our Lord, you know? And the bishop said, wait, I know where you're going with that. And said, um, when I was a kid, when, uh, before these liturgical changes, he said he remembers when the priest came out one day to give Holy Communion, and he uh, tripped, and uh, one of the hosts had fallen on the ground. And he said, just as a child, observing how the people responded, you know, people are making the sign of the cross. One lady fainted, the priest turned pale, and 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 then followed all the rubrics as our uh, rite prescribes to. You, know, you return the ciborium to the altar, you recollect the hose, you put a purificator over there. If you can take the tile out of the floor, you should do that as well to purify it carefully over the altar. Uh, you recite the miserere, the psalm of, of repentance, as you pour wine and water to 
And so, and then he saw him even after Mass come out with a magnifying glass to mm -hmm. see if there were any particles that might have been left there. Yeah. And he said that was the best sermon he had ever heard about the Most Holy Eucharist, <laughs> sure. which was a material sacrilege, an accident, yeah. but just how people responded. And so, uh, a that's, sense of reverence. Exactly. And that's just the laity, but among, yeah. obviously amongst the And I think that's what we've forgotten a lot of times is that, uh, but you know it as parents, right? Your kids learn by their senses. Yeah. You can say a million things, but it's how they act. They learn through their senses. That's our human condition. We're not uh, angels. And if we don't express that reverence, it's not, it's false then to say in that sense, it only matters what's in your heart. Okay, that's the principal thing. We're not Pharisees. We can't just go through the actions. Right. But we're human beings, not angels. And it's through our senses that we learn and that we express our love. Yeah. You know, if, you're, if your wife never heard from you that uh, any expression that you love her or a sign of that, a flower, right. or, and you just say, well, I feel it in my heart. What are you talking about? She, she might not be happy. That's so right. yeah. You learn that pretty quickly in your marriage. <laughs> so before God, too, we have to exhibit that uh, reverence to him because he gave us not only a soul but a body. So my heart and my flesh have rejoiced in the living God. No, And likewise, it's for our sake. That's how we learn, and it remains present in our mind and passes to our heart by the fact that we express it. So it's really the, what attracted me to this, to this form. Um, being a convert, I was baptized Catholic, but when I was uh, five years of age, my family stopped going to church. We started going to a Protestant church uh, sometimes. And so I didn't grow up Catholic, no experience of it. And in my adolescence, you know, without the grace of the sacraments and, and doctrine, I went astray there in public school, bad music, bad friends. and. Sure being very stubborn, uh, yep. as I am both the Polish, I'm Polish, German, and Irish, so I'm like three times stubborn. You're very conflicted. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I quickly sort of hit a bottom of realizing that, hey, life has no meaning. Um, if this, what they, this relativism is true, right. <laughs> as they propose, yeah. just a contradiction in terms, but to say, you know, life is, truth is whatever you want it to be, right. well then good and evil's relative, then why should I even smile? Why should I laugh? Why should I live? It all supposes that you want something that's good, but it's all meaningless. So if I died today, would it make any difference? Mm -hmm. Just dust in the wind, you know? Um, so that really sparked my conversion and a search. I wasn't, I'd attended a little bit of Protestant Sunday school and heard a little bit, but probably started to stop praying when I was about 12 years old and just allow myself to be led by the world. And so I uh, began to search and uh, for God, for meaning in life. And I thought, well, you know, as, as people say today, I want something spiritual, not religious, okay? right? And so I took interest, well, maybe Buddhism, that's like kind of pure spirituality, right? And it's meditation. And so I remember I got a book on Buddhism. I bought some Buddhist chants. I'm trying to do the meditation. And, and what is the focus of this? What's, what's nirvana? Like, what's nirvana mean? Nothingness. It's right. like, well, <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Right, <laughs> been there, done that. I've tasted nothingness, and it did yeah. not fill me. So, I thought maybe I should look at Christianity again. And yeah, I'll start with the New Testament. I didn't know there were four Gospels. I and that's how ignorant I was at the time. But thankfully, it was a Catholic Bible from my uh, parents' wedding, I believe. Mm -hmm. And there, it had this prayer to the Holy Ghost in the beginning, which I would say, and this picture of Christ, which I put on my wall. And that's the only instruction I had. But to search for God when you, and to read the Bible when you really need him and you're looking for meaning, it 
as it says, it pierces more sharply than a two-edged sword, and it's just totally transformed me. So I was, I was in high school at the time, and it must have been maybe a couple months. I just read through the whole New Testament and heard for the first time the Sermon on the Mount, Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, blessed are the poor in spirit. And to hear that for the first time when you're really searching for God, and then St. Paul's response, you know, he who persecuted the church of God is now an apostle, and how, you know, I, I don't want to do what I should do, and that, you know, that internal conflict, and woe to me if I'm ashamed of the gospel. Yeah. So here I'm in public school trying to change all my friends and my habits of life, and just looking at that image of Christ every day, and taking inspiration from what I was reading and from St. Paul, and and you know for me to live as Christ and to die as gain and so and a, a very timid temperament too it really inspired me to you know, I cannot be ashamed of the gospel and so uh, in that spirit I, I that was when my vocation was born and I okay. said to myself um, and how old were you at that time uh, 16 17 because okay. I remember at the end of high school uh, I was starting to tell people I was going to be a priest but so that's why I share this with you too it's the grace of God because this all happened very miraculously, very suddenly, wasn't my plan. And so my first thought was just, I want to be an apostle. Mm. I didn't really know Catholicism, Protestantism, what's the difference? I just want to be an apostle. And so I thought, what do I do? I just start walking around, go door to door. Hey, I want to talk to you about what God did for me. And, and, and then when I started to learn a little bit more and I met a Catholic priest, and understood he was a religious, and understood he takes vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And you know, sometimes they try to attack celibacy as like this church law, which is very demanding, and mm -hmm. poor priests, you know, who can't get married. And um, I've never felt that way. And from the beginning, it's rather what inspired my vocation. Interesting. Because I saw it as, yeah, this is a marriage with God. First off, as St. Paul says, you can dedicate your time to him in prayer and intimate love with him. But then in terms of fatherhood, you're a father to everybody. I'm not gonna have one family with, you know, 10, 12 kids as you, as you all have here. Sure. Uh, but I'll have, um, everybody as my family. I can go to the ends of the earth. And so that was the most attractive aspect. And so without any Catholic doctrine really, I decided I would be a Catholic priest. Mm. <laughs> Just for that motive. Wow. And so I, I remember I went to the RCIA uh, so I started, well, it's this interesting history. So then I thought, well, I'm going to be a Catholic priest. And I knew on my father's side, the Polish uh, mm -hmm. descendancy was uh, Catholic. So I thought, all right, so I'll go to the local church near my high school. So I started going to daily mass mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, before school in the morning. Mm -hmm. And that was really the best decision because there I ran into the people who are the most faithful, you know, who are there because they want to be. And, you know, they see a 17-year-old and like, hey, what are you doing here? Yeah. Do you have a vocation? Yeah. Did God tell you that? How did yeah. you know? And, well, <laughs> yeah. And so, and that, and that was, and then they started giving me, hey, you need to read this book. Yeah. This book by Saint so-and-so, and you need to read these apologetic magazines too. And so then I saw why uh, Catholicism wasn't just my preference, but what God has revealed. Sure. And that was really important. And it's very important here in the United States, of course. Yeah. I worked for nine years in Mexico, where it's predominantly a Catholic. Uh, culture, Catholic population, but in the United States, and I'm from Pennsylvania, um, I take it you're not, but no. okay, so, but from <laughs> there in Pennsylvania, you know, yeah. there's a lot, the Quaker state, right, so That's there's right. lots of different yeah. Protestants around you, Yeah. and so you need to know, as, as St. Peter tells us, to always have a reason for the hope that is within you, and so uh, 
and you know, I started running into Protestants since I began college then, and how do I explain this to them? You know, and looking up Catholic answers and, mm -hmm. and investigating uh, how to explain this. And as soon as I would learn something, it seemed that God would put someone in my path that needed that uh, right. knowledge. And so, um, so that began the, uh, the romance there. And, um, but you know, the more that I learned about the faith and the argument with the Protestants, yeah. the more I became interested too in the, so this is the, the faith of the fathers of the church sure. who spoke about the mass as a sacrifice the Eucharist as our Lord's body and blood. This in the first, second, third century. Yeah. We have plenty of references, the important role of the Blessed Virgin Mary as the queen mother of the church, um, the new Eve, you know, yeah. who redeems yeah. the world with the new Adam, under him, of course, as he's a divine person, she's a human person, but being the new Eve who uh, gives uh, him to the fruit of, of her womb, is mm -hmm. Christ, no? the mm -hmm. fruit of her womb. And so, um, but then I became interested too, and what, what about the history of the traditional liturgy as well? What was the liturgy like for the fathers of the church and the saints throughout the ages? And when I went for the first time, you know, it just clicked. Um, I thought, yes, you know, we can receive our Lord kneeling, right? As, sure. as, the magi, as the Magi, they fell down prostrate and worshiped him. That's what I wanted to do. As one Protestant said, you know, if I believed what you Catholics believe, I'd walk from, I'd crawl for miles on my knees just to be outside of the church where Christ substantially dwells. And so, um, likewise, the orientation, you know, it's not just a commemoration of, of the Last Supper, which is first and foremost a sacrifice anyways of the Paschal right. Lamb, but it's, uh, so it's both sacrifice and meal, but the thought that the priest preaches to us, but then we all turn towards God. And as Pope Benedict explained, um, I think in his book, it said, it, it didn't signify that the priest was turning his back on the people, no. but rather that they were all looking in the same direction, yeah. towards the heavenly Jerusalem, towards the sun of justice, which comes forth from the east to our encounter. Mm -hmm. and it gives us a sense that we're on pil a pilgrimage here. Yeah. We're not here to stay. So, yeah. um, And likewise, an orientation, which uh, Second Vatican Council did not uh, want to change. No. Nowhere in the document it. doesn't mention that. So, so again, don't please don't take it as a criticism of the uh, um, reform of the liturgy so much as, as Pope Benedict, uh, Pope Emeritus has yep. had often emphasized, no, 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 it's returning to what the council really wanted, That's right. what the text originally said, and you know, we're still working on achieving that. So, um, but for me, I, I, that's how I try to explain it to people. If they see a sort of rigidity to the movements mm -hmm. and ceremonies, well, it's because it expresses a symbolic mysticism. That's right. Like even this gesture, and I remember meeting a, an old man in Mexico, and after mass, you know, they're very expressive. He's yeah. before the Sacred Heart statue, and he's praying like this. Right. And I said, trying to mimic. He has the canonical digits. Yeah. But he didn't go to our mass. He was just visiting the church. And, interesting. And before the Sacred oh, Heart, and I said, you know, Senor, sir, why do you, why do you pray like that? He's like, well, I'm not sure, but I just remember that. That's how the priest used to pray before God. So it must be some secret formula to. <laughs> but then I explained it's actually a profession of our faith, whereby after the consecration, we keep these fingers together, which have touched the sacred host, so as not to lose even a particle in which our Lord uh, is contained. And so until our, our fingers are purified after distributing Holy Communion. So all those little details of love, mm -hmm. they say, um, Saint uh, Jose Maria Escriva, that uh, likewise, he, he received permission to continue to say the traditional mass, although mm -hmm. he say, said the, likewise the reform of, of Paul VI. Um, but they said, uh, 
when they were trying to teach him the, the changes and no, no, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. He started to get angry and say, they don't know how to love God. Mm. You know, it's love is expressed by all of those details. And, and it's something that Pope Benedict mentioned that uh, priests in the new rite likewise could learn and imitate, you know, that it's not necessarily forbidden to observe those same gestures. Um, and that all that, we have to understand them as a mystical symbolism. St. Teresa of Avila said she would give her life for the least ceremony of the church, you know? And she wasn't a rubricist. She quotes Latin, she writes it wrong. She's just, you know, what she knows by memory. But, um, but she said that as a mystic, as one who contemplated God and all the details. And so that's, that's I think, the important thing that it, that it teaches us and how it's a benefit to the whole church. You know, it's, it's through those, um, and maybe some priests take it for granted, being very spiritual. You know, we have a lot of theological formation, so mm -hmm. we think of abstract ideas and mm -hmm. spiritual concepts, and uh, so maybe we need less, you know, representation at times. But you know, when you really work with the people, you realize you take a lot for granted, and they need all those customs and habits and ceremonies rightly understood and loved, so as to to feed their faith. Again, as Pope Pius XI said, it's the best catechesis you can give. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a saying in the church and. Uh, excuse how I put it, but how we pray is how, is how we pray. Exactly. Believe. That's a saying of the fathers, lex orandi, lex credendi, but that the law of prayer establishes a law of belief. That's right. And that's historically the case. I mean, uh, I'd often ask people too in catechism, um, okay, is Mary the mother of God or just the mother of Christ? Or how should we say this? Wait a minute. It's a good question. Mm -hmm. So wait, how do you pray? Holy Mary, Mother of God, yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so when the story is denied in the, what, 5th century, 4th century, 5th mm -hmm. century, uh, that, that Mary was the Mother of God, the faithful rose up. Yeah. They were not confused. And the Council of Ephesus proclaimed this dogma in the church, which was called Theotokos, Mother of God. <laughs> so for the faithful, it's like, no, that's the name of my church. Of course it's true. That's how we pray. That's how we... And so... Um, so again, that's how we preserve the faith through all the traditional prayers. I often hear from those that perhaps have not been to a Latin Mass before. They say, well, God doesn't need all of that. He doesn't need Mass to be in a beautiful structure with sacred architecture. He doesn't need sacred music. He doesn't need all of the different rubrics being obediently followed as, mm -hmm. as, as the priests in um, FSSP do. But I often think back to Solomon and the specific instructions with which God gave how the temple should be built, right. down to every inch and detail of yeah. that building. How and going back even further too, to the Levites and how they were instructed mm -hmm. by Moses right. and Aaron that God, and that the sons of Aaron offered strange incense and says, you know, they did not obey the law of God. It's even when Moses struck the rock twice rather than once. Right. He was chastised pretty severely, so. Yeah, why do we need to do it? Uh, one, we should always show God the maximum reverence. Right. You know, it's not that he needs something, but it's, it's what we've lost really as a culture. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, recommend, for example, like Joseph uh, Pieper's uh, works, Pieper on, um, what is it, the leisure, the basis of culture, just the whole, especially as Americans, you know, the only philosophy we've produced is pragmatism. Right. <laughs> if it works, it's right. good, right. do it, you know. Yeah. A transcendent sense, well, the whole purpose of your life is what? To give glory to God. Yes. It's not for any practical human purpose in the end. Right. So when people say, well, I don't want to go to mass, it's too long, I just, 
what are we doing? We're wasting time. Well, that's the point. That's right. <laughs> is that your time is not for you. It's for the glory of God. And that's when you discover your true identity. Be still and know that I am God. Right. You know, it's, that's where we discover who we are. St. Catherine of Siena said um, that she received so many locutions. She didn't know how to read or write. Mm-hmm. And then she becomes a doctor of the church, you know, as our Lord reveals all these things to her. And she said, one day, she, uh, our Lord said, everything I've taught you is summarized in this. I am he who is, and you are that which is not. Yeah? And so it's, and, and you see that reflected in the liturgy too, and it's a uh, beautiful part of the mysticism of, the, of this extraordinary form is that, you know, you have sacred music, mm-hmm. which is so enchanting, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, you hear it and you just start to pray. And notice it's in Greek too, which goes back even older than Latin. So we never even changed that because that's what we always said in another language, even when we started speaking Latin. So, um, see this beautiful sacred music. Hopefully you have a good homily, you know, it's, yeah. you just repeat something that the saints say, yeah. it's guaranteed to be good. And, but then the climax of the, of the mass is not in the sacred music or some great homily or even hearing the word of God, but in silence. Everything falls silent and all you hear is the bell to signify that God has spoken his words. Let all mortal flesh keep silence, mm-hmm. you know, and with fear and trembling stand. And there our Lord becomes, the Word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. So, um, I forget what I was saying originally, but I'll carry it away there. Well, you know, (laughs) I think as... um, So, but but that's the point, is that we need to show that reverence to God, but uh, to give Him the best, because that's what we exist for. Yeah. But it's to teach us, you know, it's... uh, Let me read you the quote from Pope Pius XI. It's just such a beautiful quote. This is paragraph uh, 21, is an encyclical on Christ the King. And he says that these blessings may be abundant and lasting in Christian society. It is necessary that the kingship of our Savior should be as widely as possible recognized and understood. And to the end, nothing, and to that end, nothing would serve better than the institution of a special feast in honor of the kingship of Christ. For people are instructed, he says, in the truths of faith and brought to appreciate the inner joys of religion far more effectually by the annual celebration of our sacred mysteries than by any official pronouncement of the teaching of the church. Such pronouncements usually reach only a few, and the more learned, among the faithful. Feasts reach them all. The former speak but once, the latter speak every year, in fact, forever. The church's teaching affects the mind primarily. Her feasts affect both mind and heart, and have a salutary effect upon the whole of man's nature. Man is composed of body and soul, and he needs these external festivities so that the sacred rites and all their beauty and variety may stimulate him to drink more deeply of the fountain of God's teaching, that he may make it a part of himself and use it with profit for his spiritual life. And that's, you know, I just remind my brother priest because only a very spiritual, intellectual, celibate man could fall into the error of thinking, you know, well, it doesn't matter what, you know, how you express it in your senses. Like, you know, as parents sure. and interacting as a priest with families too, uh, I remember uh, trying to explain to one of my friend's daughters, she's about eight at the time, and started my explanation of, well, the, see, the priesthood represents, he's like, wait, she doesn't know what a priesthood is. 
She knows what a priest is, <laughs> but right. now, even two plus two is four. Well, two, what's a two? Sure. Two little birdies, two fingers, plus, you know, so. Yeah. Anyways, that's just to repeat that point, we need it because it teaches us who we are in relation to God. Yeah. So. Well, I think what I found to be, as I discovered the Latin Mass for the first time, I grew up in the, the Nova Sordo my whole life, uh, cradle Catholic, and, you know, had moments where I walked away from the faith, not by belief, but by my actions mm -hmm. and how I was living my life. But what I found specifically, different between the two, um, and what I feel is so important for, for today, is the um, liturgy, the Tridentine rite. When you combine it with beautiful architecture, the beautiful chant, it draws you vertically towards heaven. Everything today is horizontal and flat. It's, it's um, almost the, the uh, democracy, uh, the democratization yeah. of our culture, where everything is Cease. We want everything to be equal and, and yeah. horizontal, on a horizontal plane, eye to eye. Yeah. But with the liturgy, it's not eye to eye, right. because we can't come eye to eye with our Lord. Rather, it's looking vertically towards heaven. And um, you mentioned the Feast of Christ the King. Yeah. For me, one of the most um, important aspects where I, I came to better understand um, the Latin Mass, I came to understand its reverence for the Eucharist, was in the kneeling to receive the Eucharist. Yeah. If you think about Christ as our king, what should you do yeah, if you exactly. come before a king, yeah. but kneel before a king? And again, just to repeat the point, don't take it as a criticism of the Novus Ordo, of the right. ordinary form of the Roman Rite, because there's no law which says, you should celebrate it in an ugly church with no right. <laughs> images of saints, or right. uh, go back to what Vatican II actually said. Um, and even the first uh, form of the Roman Missal, and of Paul VI, which comes out then in December of 1969, but it presupposes that you're facing the altar and that you're saying it in Latin. That's still the official text. And so, again, the church's desire is that we, we don't lose this. It was never to be a change against it, but you know, sometimes that happens. There's a sort of a sort of rebellious sure. spirit of like, no, not that anymore. Well, you know, like a kid leaving his house, like, I'm not gonna do anything my parents told me. Like, right. Actually, there were pretty wise counsels in there. Maybe yeah. you should. <laughs> So uh, but what the church is trying to tell us to do is, is to recover that, observe the church's laws, the actual laws, sure. which uh, command us to have that reverence. But I, I agree the, um, when I first, the, that we ordinarily in our right, uh, the norm is to receive while kneeling. Mm -hmm. um, that, that really helps me a lot, you know? And that's the point is I need that. If we don't show the reverence, we have unfortunately a familiarity that breeds contempt. Yeah. So my weakness, I need all of those expressions to help me uh, conserve that reverence. But, and, and the opposite is true, too. Here's an opposite example, a uh, terrible example from that evil genius uh, Voltaire of the French Revolution, mm -hmm. you know, out to destroy the Catholic Church. And he had a friend who had renounced the Catholic religion, but told him privately, you know, even though I don't believe anymore, I can't not believe in the real presence of Christ mm -hmm. and the Blessed Sacrament. Because, you know, I prepared for my first Holy Communion with such reverence, such devotion. It was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. I just can't rid myself of that uh, recognition that Christ is there. Yeah. You know what Voltaire told him to do? To ruin his faith, to corrupt his faith. He said, keep going to Holy Communion, but don't prepare yourself. Don't pray. Don't go to confession. And don't give thanks afterwards. Yeah. Repeat that. And so he did. 
And after about a month, he said, yeah, now I no longer believe. So again, it was a false familiarity which breeds contempt. Now, God is, the word has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. He's, uh, he's closer to our uh, innermost self than we ourselves, as St. Augustine says, you know? Yep. Uh, so yeah, he's close, it's intimacy, but it's intimacy with God. He is absolutely holy, and so, and we grow in that intimacy and union, insofar as we empty ourselves in humility, too. So it always has to be that balance of, I mean, think I was just um, using the scriptural rosary as I was striving here and meditating on the resurrection and how, um, and they went out filled with joy and great fear. Yeah? Always that balance of the joy that Christ is amongst us. That's God. So it's a holy fear, too, a holy reverence in your soul, but at the joy that he's present. So that um, liturgically, uh, in whatever rite that you're celebrating, um, you know, you want to aim for that ambience, that balance of that expression of joy that God is here. But it's likewise, he's, it's God who's here. You know, and we are here. supposed to work out our salvation in fear, in fear and, and trembling. 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 Yeah. And that sanctifies us. Yeah. Fear is a gift of the Holy Ghost, whereby we would fear to offend God. And again, I don't need to express it. I don't need to explain it to those who are in love. It's all those little uh, symbols, expressions that express that love and make it grow. Yeah, you know, and that's our human condition. So that's relationships grow as a husband and a wife. A husband should always be courting his wife, um, constantly, you know, falling in love. Well, with said her. we're recording this, by the way, too. Your wife could hear this. She, she, I, I, I can stand by. It. I'll stand by, it. and I'm sure she'll hold me to it. In a couple of years, she'll she'll, re, she'll recall it for me. Great. Um, but it's important those little details, those details yeah. that they notice um, that you do that express your love. And those the yeah. same details that we should express towards Holy Mother Church yeah. and obviously exactly. our Lord. And I've noticed it as a priest too. There's been uh, times where I thought I've, yeah, I really gave a great sermon. You know, I came out really well. Yeah. You know? sure. <laughs> of course, we're only repeating what the saints say, so it's there's no copyrights in the Catholic Church in that right. sense. But um, but I, thought, oh, I came out well. I think hopefully moved people to, to love our Lord more. And so I'm standing outside, you know, greeting the people after Mass. And and what were all the comments? Father, that Mass was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sacred, that's hymn they sung at Holy Communion. It's a Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony and Palestrina. It's like, and, and the incense, and it's like, <clears throat> and, uh, <laughs> oh, so, oh yeah, sermon was good, but no, it was so beautiful. <laughs> that's how I realized I'll never beat my choir, you know, yeah. in terms of moving the people. It's, um, and that's the point too, is that, and it's a high philosophical point, is that uh, truth, goodness and beauty mm-hmm. and oneness are transcendentals and interchangeable. Mm. So it's interesting, but that beauty is the sensible um, expression of truth. Yeah. yeah. And that's why there's an objectivity to it, right? Sure. No one looks at the sunset, yes. We're here in Southwest Florida. We can Beautiful watch sunsets. The, watch the sunset on the yeah. East Coast. What a great yeah. deal, you know? <laughs> but I've never seen anyone out there saying, ah, oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. No? People even clap, they're all excited right. every time the sun goes down. So, you know. Um, so that relativist term, beauty in the eye of the beholder, not yeah, necessarily no. true. But here's what it reflects, is that every man judges according to his disposition, as Aristotle okay. noted and St. Thomas oft repeated. So it expresses, so if your soul is disordered, you even find a certain pleasure in disordered expressions of beauty right. and ugliness because your soul is ugly. Which explains a lot of the architecture of the 20th century and the 19th century. Expresses at times, even there was a book written um, 
by those who helped design our seminary, but criticizing bad architecture as ugly as sin. <laughs> that was the sure. point. It's, yeah. You know, it's... Well, much it's, of the modernist yeah. architecture and brutalist architecture you see in the yeah. 20th century and 19th century um, yeah. is, is of that reflection. Well, what's it expressing? Yeah. We're equal to God. We're on the same plane yeah. or that we don't need God. There's not even representations of him. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's tragic, really, but... Um, but yeah, the beauty expresses truth. And so likewise, forming your families, mm -hmm. uh, it's very important you know, that your kids listen to good music for the formation of their soul. Yeah. You know, there can be maybe a place if they're doing exercise and you just have some sure. you know, cheap pop music which moves your passions or whatever for uh, doing exercise or something like that. But that's not, they shouldn't listen to anything like that habitually. And in my own personal conversion, it was bad music that started to disorient my soul yeah. uh, in the beginning. Uh, but good music, it elevates the soul. So think of like uh, classical music. Just think of how you respond. Because yeah. the ancient philosophers, the Greeks, used to say you can judge a culture by their music, mm -hmm. right? And so how do you respond? You know, heavy metal. Well, you just fight. That The form of dancing is a mosh pit where you beat each other. Right. Or, you know, this very sensual music. It's basically some sort of prelude to fornication or, you know. Sure. So just look at how they react and you can see what they're worshiping or where their right. soul is going. Right. Now listen to good classical music, a Bach, a Mozart. You can't dance to it, you know, you don't start. Right. Why? It's, it's affecting your passions, but ordering them towards reason, yeah. you know? It's very um, ordered and so there's a, an emotional pleasure which is stimulated but directed towards reason, so it's ennobling you. Yeah. And then take it even a whole nother level to sacred music, like I was just singing. Uh, you can rewind this time, so. Yeah. <laughs> or go on YouTube and hear some real good sacred music. Mm -hmm. But you'll notice in Gregorian chant, the most, as Vatican II said, which is the liturgical chant par excellence, there is no rhythm, no? I used to play the drums when I was a kid, and, and when I had my first class of Gregorian chant, I'm like, how do I count this? Is it one, and two? is this two, four, four? what's mm -hmm. going on? Like, no rhythm, just sort of a pulse as it floats. Mm -hmm. Now the pulse represents what? Your heartbeat, the flesh, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and the most degraded music, it seems it's just this nonstop pulse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the most spiritual music, there is no beat. You're just sort of floating in the heavens. Sure. So it's, um, but again, Beauty, who was the uh, famous uh, Russian philosopher, that the beauty will save the world. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Dostoevsky. Yeah, the beauty yeah. will save the world. And then again, because it's, it's undeniable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the truth speaks for itself because beauty speaks for itself. You spoke earlier about large families. One of the things that are striking about when, whenever you attend a Latin Mass in particular, you mm -hmm. see these beautiful large yeah. families um, that are certainly doing their part to keep up that population rate yeah. here in, in the United States and North America. Um, We're really blessed, I would say, uh, um, and again, it should occur in every parish, right? And sure. everybody, if you're truly Catholic, mm -hmm. be fruitful and multiply. That was the first commandment, okay? Yeah. Um, but what, uh, what is generally a, a selling point or something beautiful for us as priests of, of our community is that people only come to our community because they want to. Mm -hmm. okay? So we're not a territorial, but a personal parish and that our members are those who, you know, sign up because they want to be there. Right. And so generally they're smaller. Uh, maybe we have a population base in our 50 mass centers in the North American district of you know, 15,000 thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And so with a community of about 300 people with one or two priests at their service, mm -hmm. it, it allows us um, to be able to attend them in a much more personal 
way. You know, I give the courses of catechesis to the adults. Now, hats off to the priests who run parishes of 4,000 families. I don't know yeah. how they do it. And, and again, I'm not judging them. I'm just saying, for us, we have a distinct advantage for the moment uh, in being able to serve our people. Now, I'm sure in the future it'll grow and grow, and we'll have to you have different you know, learn their yeah. great administrative skills as well. But um, that it's a little more personal. So it's a, it's a nice moment because obviously we're in a crisis, both in society and in the church. There's yeah. a lot of confusion. So to have a small community where everybody is of one mind yeah. and you have priests formed and you know what the church says, what St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, how he's explained the church's teaching and holding on to the traditions of our forefathers, yeah. uh, which obviously worked wonderfully. Um, <laughs> it's an anecdotal response too when somebody said, in, to me one time in Mexico, so I don't, I'm not sure this would work really with our people. It's like, you know what? It's not an experiment. Yeah. We've been doing this since 1517, okay? When we first came down to Cozumel from, from Cuba. So it's not really an experiment. It worked pretty well. So, yes. you know, if we have the humility to, to learn and be patient and, and recover those things. But um, what was I saying? How, um, Again, so yeah, so you see it's a neat moment with families. And of course, everybody's living in the same world with the same sure. problems, but steel sharpens steel. So we as a priestly fraternity, as a society of apostolic life, we do a diocesan work, mm -hmm. but we live together you yeah. know, in a brotherhood where, whereby we pray together, we eat together. And that's really helpful you know, in a crazy world. Likewise, for our community, I think the feedback I'm receiving now, and we're so grateful to Bishop Dwayne for inviting us here, but what, what they're so grateful for is that you know, we used to come down and say the mass for them on Sunday and go mm -hmm. back. But now that we're here, they say, oh, now we feel like a community because we have the men's group, the ladies group, the young adults group, the girls group, the boys group, mm -hmm. the adult catechesis, classes mm -hmm. of, of chant. And, and so they really feel more like a family. And that's, that's really what I take from Mexico too, mm -hmm. um, which we need to inject our mm -hmm. American culture with. You know, as historically we come from different countries, different religions. Yeah. How do we make this work? Forming a country, but kind of in the absence of a common culture, because yeah. we don't have a common cult worship that we offer mm -hmm. to God. So what I observed in Mexico, what I learned from them and their whole mi casa, su casa, mm -hmm. sort of uh, attitude and disposition, it's because we're all family, because yeah. we're of the same faith. And you know, ethnically, they're one people in that sense too, but um, we can achieve that through the faith as we form our, our race, our nation. Mm -hmm. um, we're giving people that sense, you know? It's not that Protestant individualism where it's just me and God, or I go to Mass, I get my grace, don't say hello to anyone and mm -hmm. leave. It's like, no, we're a family, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the Catholic ideal. And that's what, you know, as St. John, at the end of his life, mm -hmm. what he kept repeating <laughs> to the point where they said, why do you always say the same thing? Like, you're giving the same sermon, St. John. Yeah. Well, what's going on? It was like, love one another. And he's like, because if you do that, that's enough. And he has to emphasize, if you don't love your neighbor, don't love God and uh, just emphatic on that point and and yeah it's what i told my people to after nine years with them was just a somewhat longer assignment for mm -hmm. us and and those are my last comments too of like you know you all love this beautiful liturgical expression of the mass great prove it by your love and reverence of your neighbor yeah if i keep hearing of these little infighting and gossip and murmuring like then why are you even coming to mass this Mass, again, we're not Pharisees, and this Mass is to make you holier. Yeah. You, you, wanna, you need to beat your breast more times and say a second confidior and, and be on your knees longer because you, that makes you humbler. Really? Prove it. 
you know? Mm -hmm. If it gives you more charity, more humility, that should be expressed in your deeds. So, again, the people that get used to, we, we just tend to take everything for granted, you know? So, but that's why we try to continually impart a lot of catechesics. I've uh, been giving classes explaining the whole history and the mystery of the Mass mm -hmm. and uh, just reviewing the faith and so, uh, but again I thank you for this opportunity oh. to do this um, well, it's to the wonderful. ends of the earth. So. Yeah, it's been wonderful to have you. Yeah. One last question for Please. you before you wrap up. <clears throat> mentioned crisis in the church is going on, crisis in our society. A lot of people are grasping at straws as to how to reach young people. Mm. Generation Z if you want to call them that, Millennials if you want to call them that. Yeah. One of the things we found or we're seeing anecdotally is that a lot of young people are drawn to tradition, whether it be chant or uh, sacred architecture, yeah. the mass, the, the, uh, the Latin mass. Why do you think that is? That um, at least amongst the oh. Catholic community, you're seeing actually yeah. not people that experience the mass as children um, coming back to the Latin mass, and they do, yeah. but rather there's a predominance of younger people that have never experienced it. Yeah that are, are, are searching and yearning for well, this? I think it, you know, based on my own experience too, I think it's the same thing because hope springs eternal. Again, we're made for truth, mm -hmm. okay? Our hearts are restless until they rest in Neo God and it's truth that makes us free. Love rejoices in truth. Yeah. So I think in the same culture of relativism, <clears throat> uh, people are just running into that, okay, life is meaningless, well, why should I live? And they're looking for something real, authentic, they can grasp that there is truth. And so I think, um, you know, I remember too in the process of my conversion, speaking of the crisis in the church, one of my professors in, in high school, she was Catholic, mm -hmm. quote unquote, because, uh, but she was very much in favor of changing the teachings of the church and making it more like Protestantism. And she tried to propose that to me. And, and I said, well, why are you even Catholic? Mm -hmm. And she got offended. I'm like, no, but really like, it wasn't a, a dig on her. I just, right. as a convert, like, I'm choosing because I think this is true because <laughs> God has revealed it. And you can right. prove that by miracles, prophecies. And, like, why are you Catholic if you think it's wrong, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so I think people are just uh, looking for that. And, and in terms of my vocation, too, you'll notice that the more traditional an order is, the more vocations they have. Mm -hmm. I think someone said uh, the statistic was that our order is the fastest growing mm -hmm. um, maybe in the world, I'd have to look at more statistics perhaps, but um, likewise, any more conservative, traditional, faithful to yeah. what they are? Because for me, it was just like, well, if I didn't really want to be Catholic, I wouldn't be, yeah. you know? And, and I always share that with the Mexicans because they're all Catholic by birth, but not necessarily by conviction. Mm -hmm. And I don't tell them, well, I'm Catholic by conviction. Mm -hmm. My mom's not Catholic. If, She'd be glad if I weren't a priest, perhaps. <laughs> right. And so I have no family pressure. I'm doing this because it's true and it's real. That's what everybody's looking for. And so they're looking for realness. Yeah. And again, life. sin is against your nature. It's not something that randomly God just decided to prohibit because yeah. it's, you know, life would be too much fun and he wants to make your life miserable and difficult. No. Sin is against your nature. Yeah. It's like, you know, like you're raising kids, like, all right, you just want to eat. Uh, you know, chocolate, frosted, sugar bombs, or whatever, you know, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Eat all that you can. All right. Follow your passion. Right. And you know, like, oh, my stomach hurts. Oh, I'm hungry. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it'll be. You know, you're going into the world um, following all of its temptations. Well, guess what? You're going to hit bottom pretty soon. 
-hmm. and uh, then you're going to be looking for truth, solid food. And so, and that's where we give our example of just being faithful. I mean, always think too of how the apostles began preaching. Mm -hmm. You know, St. Peter's first sermon was not very politically correct. (laughs) He told his fellow Israelites, guess what? The Messiah did come. He was the author of life, God himself, and you put him to death. Like, you know, hey, hey, tone it down. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> but he spoke out of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, spoke the truth, and from kinsman to kinsman, told them uh, what their fault was, mm-hmm. and how many thousands converted that same day. Yeah. You know, so we just have to be faithful. God will give the grace. We can't water down the product, as one priest said. I'm in sales. I'm not in management. I don't get That's to right. design this. Like, right. I just sell the product. That's Here right. it is. What our Lord Jesus Christ taught, um, what the church teaches. So, um, so that's very important, you know, just being faithful and being faithful in a spirit of joy too. Yeah. You know, it's, I can really say, I'm, what, 10 years of priest, so not even a priestly adolescent yet, but, uh, but it's never been difficult in that sense of, you know, celibacy or the sacrifice. I didn't make a sacrifice. I married God. I'm sure your wives are great, you know, but <laughs> God's perfect, you know. It's so a like, <laughs> it is a higher calling. You know, and, yeah. and uh, if you live it, if you just you truly live it, and that's um, as C.S. Lewis said, right? Joy, the infallible sign that God exists. Because mm-hmm. how is it possible, really, Father? You know, you're you, no sex, no wife, no nothing, and you're really happy. Mm-hmm. You know, same in the, the first century of Christianity, um, saturated in lust and vice in the Roman culture. Uh, perverse homosexual practices too, as St. Paul points out in his mm-hmm. letter to the Romans, idolatry, everything's falling apart. And here's, you know, young virgin maidens who don't want to get married because they just married Christ. Yeah. St. Agnes, you know, they're, the executioner is shaking as he's about to chop the neck of this young right. girl off. Right. And she's smiling, can't wait to see her bridegroom in heaven, you know? So that's what, how we have to live it as well. You live it with that joy nobody can deny. There's a lot of, you know, false news out there and lots of commentaries, but what they're looking for, they'll look into your soul and say, is it for real? Are you happy? You know, are you, and joy again, that that joy of possessing the truth? Yeah. Because again, goodness is likewise convertible with truth. Truth, goodness, beauty, that's our testimony. And it's, are you living it? And that's the last message I want to leave. I know we have a lot of men that will hear your talk tomorrow and perhaps may have um, a lot of men that will listen to this, yeah. but it's living it. It's being joyful, but also living it and being consistent in your daily life. So that means your business interactions, your relationships yeah. with other family members and friends, everything you do, yeah. if they know that you are a faithful Catholic, they want to see it because right. they want to be drawn to the faith through you. You have to be that light to people yeah. that you interact with on a daily basis. Right. And it's, uh, so first off, be courageous, no? Age yeah. virilite, as the psalmist says, mm-hmm. you know, wage manfully, you know, be a man, man up. And again, I, I'm a, of a very temp, timid temperament. You may not believe it from this talk, I've gotten <laughs> accustomed to speaking, but I remember my conversion, I was so filled with insecurity, anxiety, fear mm-hmm. all the time. And But I would read in the Bible, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. And if your spirit is timid, you have another spirit, the Holy Spirit within you, let him speak. Mm-hmm. But my grace is sufficient for thee. Power, virtue is made perfect in weakness. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. If you truly depend on God, that's what it means to be a man. Like St. Joseph, no? Yeah. And a few words, right? Doesn't know what to do. 
Maybe he wasn't the most intelligent, naturally speaking. But he prays, and he waits for God to illumine him, and he responds immediately, no questions. Faithful, faithful, faithful. And he's the greatest saint under the Blessed Virgin Mary in heaven. That's right. Carpenter, you know? Yeah. I mean, he can identify with him. So be faithful and pray. Because, um, again, we are what we are by the grace of God. If you say it's difficult and you're too weak, I'm going to ask you, are you taking your vitamins? Are you doing exercise? Right. <laughs> Namely, right. are you praying? Are you receiving the sacraments? Right. Without that, with God, um, you know, without God, as our Lord said, without me, you can do yeah. nothing, right? So with God, with Christ, all things are possible. So um, you have to root yourself in prayer. But God will give you the grace. Be a leader. You're the salt of the earth, mm -hmm. you know, the light of the world. And we're not here to follow the world. We're here to change it. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about the history of not only Mexico, just the world, of how the saints went out, you know, 12 apostles against uh, Roman Empire, pagan mm -hmm. Roman Empire, or when Cortes and the Spaniards arrived uh, in Mexico against this evil Aztec Empire, which had many aspects of civilization, but, so, you know, like the blood-sucking wizard god yep. <laughs> was appeased by human sacrifice, like, whoa, how do we in encounter this? And Cortes was like, you want to go back? Go back. We're cutting the, the ties to the boats. We're here to stay, you know. Yeah. And we're doing this for Christ the King. And, you know, with that confidence, you know, within a century they had built Christendom. And incredible, that whole history of how many saints and missionaries came uh, and the work that they did. So, again, just trust in, in, in God. He has the victory. We just yeah. have to be faithful. And gain back all the losses from That's uh, right. the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. yeah. A, a miracle. Well, on that note, if you would just lead us in a closing prayer. Absolutely. We'll say it in Latin for our universal Catholic family here. Yes. In nomine Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Gloria Patri et Filio, et Spiritui Sancto, sicut erat in principio, nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Benedictio de omnipotentis, Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Descendat super vos, mani semper. Amen. So with that blessing travels through the internet. Uh, your family, so. I believe it will. Thank you so much. Thank you, Father. Thanks Not for joining really. us. Thanks. And uh, hope you tune in to our fourth episode. Um, should be debuting next month. And until then, wish you a blessed Advent season and eventually a blessed Christmas. Amen.